Welcome, dear listeners, to another special episode of $5 Buzz. This is your co-host, Roger Mayer, out in Los Angeles. And as always, I am joined by our intrepid co-hosts, Mr. <laughs> George Kersar, out in Stamford, Connecticut. How are you, sir? Good. I've got, a, um, I've got the fan on, and I've got a, a fresh <laughs> bottle of citrus spray, so I'm doing well. Nice. That's nice. And then also in Los Angeles, we have fellow buzzard, Mr. Pete Liska. What's happening, Pete? I'm fantastic. Uh, excited for this evening to have this conversation. I just uh, poured myself a tumbler of uh, Glenlivet scotch. That's a thing I've been onto lately. Maybe in honor of uh, Dr. Gonzo himself uh, would probably enjoy one with me, but uh, that's what's going on over here. Well, that leads me to say that this episode tonight is dedicated to that dearly departed maestro of literary mayhem, the good doctor of gonzo journalism himself, Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, For those who don't know, you're probably familiar with his most famous work, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, made into a film starring Johnny Depp and directed by Terry Gilliam, as well as his expose on biker culture, Hell's Angels, his takedown of Richard Nixon in Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 72, The Curse of Lono, about his misadventures covering the 1980 Honolulu Marathon, and The Rum Diary, also made into a film starring Johnny Depp. He invented the subgenre, gonzo journalism, whereby he inserts himself directly into the featured narrative and was a figurehead of the counterculture movement and wrote extensively about his fetishes with LSD, alcohol, politics, sports, guns, usually all within the same narrative. His suicide by a self-inflicted gunshot and subsequent funeral or stuff of legend, and his life has been covered in multiple documentaries. We are joined by two special guests to help us weigh in on the current state of affairs and how sorely missed are the voices of rabble-rousing reasoning like Mr. Dr. Thompson's. We have fellow traveler Kevin M. Colgan from Los Angeles, who is the author of a new book in the works, tentatively titled Letters to Hunter, Fear and Loathing on Lockdown. It's the hilariously yet thought-provoking imagined correspondence of himself with Hunter S. during the year of the COVID pandemic, and he'll be sharing some of his letters during the second half of our show. Say hello, Kevin. Hello, gentlemen. Very good to see you all. I didn't know I was supposed to have a tumbler of a a cocktail, else I would have done that, but maybe maybe later on I'll uh, do some catching up. (laughs) but first we have a a man very familiar and beloved by almost everyone on our show tonight yet i've had not the fortune to know him myself i'm very excited to get to know him as i'm sure you will too i introduce to you mr clifton lee from baton rouge louisiana hello clifton hey everybody how y'all doing welcome man thank you pete Before we get started uh, with Mr. Thompson, uh, Cliff, can you give us some background on yourself and also tell us your relation and expertise with the works of Hunter S. Thompson? Something about you, something about Hunter. Why don't you give us a little background? Sure. I was a a budding journalism student in the early 70s, totally dismayed and alienated from the political environment we were in at the time. It was death throes of Vietnam and uh, we just survived LBJ and, and only to inherit Richard Nixon, which was like having a dark screen covering everything. 
and in my dismay, I started catching glimpses of this budding journalist in Rolling Stone magazine who was writing this brilliant Twain-esque uh, copy for them. And the guy caught up in the sweep of the uh, Hunter Thompson movement as it was starting to bud and uh, read, went back and read uh, Fear and Loathing with the Hells Angels and uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, which were brilliant. And then he started doing uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, piecemeal fashion on Rolling Stone. They did it in segments. And I just was blown away by his brilliance and use of the language. Um, I actually got to see him speak live at Berkeley one year in the late 80s. And, er, and he was just amazing. He, he handled the crowd with a, a palm, he, including hecklers that were mad about him being 45 minutes late and slightly inebriated <laughs> when he showed up. <laughs> but I've been a huge fan ever since. And uh, just as he wrote uh, the great Gatsby on a typewriter three times to get uh, Fitzgerald's writing style down in his muscle memory. Uh, I did the same thing with his works in, in journalism school. Of course, he was anathema to the classical journalist of the period because he, he wrote from a subjective, he interjected himself as, as Kevin said earlier into his, uh, his work, the story became about Hunter as much as it did about whatever he was supposedly writing about. But uh, I, I, I've always been amazed by him. And me and Pete and Kevin, I had all my Hunter Thompson stuff out in my basement in, in Virginia when they first came by and met me. And they both connected immediately. So we've all had a, uh, a connection ever since about uh, the great doctor. I will never forget what, what Cliff had constructed for his office at in, in Leesburg, Virginia, which is the first time I, I had the pleasure of meeting him and, and his lovely wife, Martha. The office that I am currently sitting in is uh, it's a poor replica of uh, what Cliff constructed in terms of a, a tribute to Hunter. But I've done what I can to uh, to to simulate the same the same Gonzo vibe. And George, you have a connection to Cliff. Why don't you explain that to us? Yeah, I'll try and keep it as brief as possible, but it's a pretty uh, integral story, Cliff. Uh, hopefully you remember part of this. Uh, when I got married, well, I proposed to my wife and I asked Pete to be my best man. And I said, uh, the only real responsibility I asked for you to do is A, give a speech at the wedding, and B, uh, could you organize a bachelor party? And I said one thing I always wanted to do growing up in Long Island, New York, and, you know, living in New York City for uh, a, a good deal of my life was go to an SEC football game. I wanted to get some of my friends together and go see a game. And Pete said, well, let me talk to Clifton. Uh, and I, I had met your daughter, who uh, I, I had a lot of uh, fond memories of and good times with uh, back in New York. And uh, Pete said, you know, Pete, maybe you could tell that part of the story a little bit better about uh, – what you remember, you gave Cliff a call to source these tickets. And I think Pete said, Hey man, I could get you tickets to LSU, <laughs> Alabama in Baton Rouge. Well, that was the, that was the, and the year is the- just for a frame of reference to, this is uh, the game we did wind up going to was November 6, 2010. That was uh that was funny because um it, it was a, it wasn't a small ask at first Cliff's like, Hey man, you know, you ever want to come down or family's got tickets, you know, they're pretty good seats and all that. I hit him up for the first time for 12 tickets to the Alabama LSU game. 
but he delivered and uh it was it was a really special day I, we got to see you towards the end of that day he came by and uh I, I yeah, yeah. You guys we had the the people with that you knew from uh new york that had the, their family had the big tailgate yeah. thing with that yeah. dancing poles and yeah. stuff. It was good. Yeah. <laughs> oh man the the lsu uh, tigers nobody tailgates like that like that group of people they had uh fresh fish from Pontchartrain, big jambalaya going. We brought a keg over there. There was a dance floor, big top tens, and a big RV in the back. I mean, that was a great, great. About three slots down, Pete said, is that an alligator they're cooking on that barbecue? <laughs> yeah. said, yes, it is. <laughs> yep. That and is, uh, is, uh, I'll try it. I just have a couple of quick things I want to get because I think it's kind of interesting before we dive into the Hunter S. Thompson portion of the show. Um when we first got to, well, Pete and I had been to Mardi Gras in 1999, and I hadn't been back since. That was my first time in uh, New Orleans. I always kind of wanted to go back. And we really, in another episode, we'll talk about our trip to Mardi Gras. Hopefully someday <laughs> I get to go back. It was a life-changing event. Uh, I, I think it took me about a month to recover from that trip. Uh, I, I was not normal for a very long time. Uh, well, the first night we went out, we were in a nightclub, nothing too exciting except Reggie Bush, who was playing for the New Orleans Saints was there. And he was standing next to a guy who I don't know if a lot of people remember named Darren Sharper. Darren Sharper wound up getting in a lot of trouble um, for being a serial rapist, I believe. Very disturbing yeah. stuff. But when yes. in retrospect, when I, think about it he was standing with reggie bush who had absolutely nothing to do with any of that just happened to be teammates and darren sharper was just staring into the crowd and i just remember it being it just kind of stood out and Whoa. lo and behold all these years later there's some you can go and read the stories there's some very disturbing stuff I, that was probably pretty big news down in new orleans wasn't it clifton yeah uh, yes it was yes it was mm -hmm. uh, reggie had his set of baggage too coming out of the controversy about usc right uh I think he ended up losing his Heisman over that whole episode. Yeah, yeah. they wound up taking it away from him. And it's yeah. funny, uh, back in – As well as the records for USC. Correct. It's funny, when we were uh, – the episode we talked about, the Super Bowl, Danny, I got to go to a draft party. And I remember sitting and talking to a guy who was on the Heisman um, committee – and it, right when they decided to strip Reggie Bush, and I remember having a conversation about him, like, oh, why'd you do that to, to Reggie? And not, not quite that way, but he kind of had a thoughtful response and said, look, you know, this guy wasn't playing by the rules, so we just had to do what we got to do. Uh, Cliff, we also wound up the next day going to Galatoire's. Uh, Galatoire's, yeah. I assume Galatoire's. Could you tell the audience a little bit about that establishment? Well, I don't think I yeah. can ever do justice how – that's an old school, old school uh, restaurant family here in, in New Orleans. They had a restaurant briefly after Katrina here in Baton Rouge, but they pulled in their, their tent and moved back to New Orleans. But uh, yeah, legendary uh, New Orleans cuisine uh, from, you know, the charbroiled oysters to all of the traditional fare of, you know, uh, etouffee and gumbo and bisque and so forth. It's, it is one of those, uh, must-go restaurants if you're going to be in New Orleans any length of time. Yeah, we really enjoyed it. We we wound up uh, getting really drunk in the French Quarter. Next day, I, re I just remember being so hungover. I'll never forget it. And Pete ripped the blanket off me and said, we're going to the game. And I walked downstairs. <laughs> all, about 10 guys are in a bus, and we're driving from New Orleans to uh, Baton Rouge. And somebody sticks uh, – 
like a flask of Jim Beam. Like I want to die. <laughs> and this is the main event. We're driving up to Baton Rouge. And then I, I vividly remember Pete, we, we pull off the road and we, we pull into like a, all I could describe it as a junkyard. It looked like something from Sanford and son. And Pete's like, <laughs> we're going to get a keg of Sierra Nevada. And do you, oh, do you I remember, remember that place. Yeah, I do. I remember going to have to find it down there. Yeah, that's a pretty Where was sketchy, that? sketchy part of South Baton Rouge down there. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Because I left the keg behind for you guys to take back because we were taking off. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. right. You had to take it back. Yeah, so, we were all kind of edged out about that whole that whole adventure. But the, he delivered. The guy got us beers. All I remember now. Yeah, and uh, we wind up going to the game. So it's November 6, twenty ten. We go to uh the game the, the tailgate there's a dance floor they start playing the jay-z song new york new york when they found out we're from new york and pete we were hanging out with this uh team this group called the tiger town mafia and yeah. right now i have some mardi gras beads from the tiger town oh yeah look at that <laughs> and i hang this on my christmas tree every year and uh i lose a lot of things over the years like we all do but i this is a prized possession of mine i'm also wearing a t-shirt from the day of the game oh, and on oh, look the back, at that. it's uh, if you could see it it the has the show on earth that's yeah, right I'll, 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 I'll post a picture of it but i think i've worn this shirt twice in my entire life and this is one of them and uh i wanted to wear it <laughs> i thought it would be appropriate y'all couldn't have picked a better game it, they yeah. were wound up they needless to say you probably detected the fact that they're not real wild about alabama around here and no uh, no uh, and it, it, Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it was they were they were ready for that game though. They, they, they y'all got to go to a great one. Oh it man, they were game. they were dogs in the game and they've won. They yeah, they, yeah. Man, they they had to get they got escorted by the Louisiana State Police out of there. I mean that was something else to see. And, and yeah. I know in the interest of time, I'll just speed it up. But on the field that day was the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, Mark Ingram. You had yeah. the num- in the so this is 2010 and 2011. You had Patrick Peterson who's the number five overall pick in the 2011 draft covering uh, Julio Jones, who uh, yeah. was the Out, number, Arkansas, the honey the, badger, the, the number six. So it was number pick number five in the first round covering pick six. Uh, Ingram was there. Uh, was Matt the other yet? No, uh, this, is, this is No, he wasn't there. I did. Uh, no, he wasn't there yet. But uh, yeah, LSU wound up winning, so that was a great experience, and I just wanted to say thank you for uh, providing that. Oh man, uh, it was my pleasure. You guys were hilarious. You know, you know, I, I kept telling Pete, "Hey, this ain't your regular football down here. You know, yeah. if, you, you, if you've gone to watch Harvard play, this isn't going to be anything like what you're used to." <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, you know, just to close it out, you know, on LSU football, uh, Clifton, you know, who my, one of my favorite college plays was uh, Kevin Falk. You probably remember. Oh yeah, he had a pretty good run with uh, Tom Brady and the Patriots. But uh, first cousin of Marshall Falk. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you, and uh, you know we can steer back uh, onto the Hunter S. Thompson track. I just wanted to say thank you because that was uh, great memories, and uh, I got my T-shirt and my beat. I think they had uh, Shaquille O'Neal pawing around the sidelines at that game too. Uh, I believe it. Yeah. Yeah, a he's point. a big supporter. He, he says LSU stands for Love Shack University. <laughs> <laughs> well, all of that ties into our man Hunter S. Thompson, a lover of sports and alcohol and uh, mayhem. So I think steering back into the topic at hand, 
uh, I'd like to just start off by asking, you know, we know that during the last four years, we've had a real tough run for some, a lot of us with the presidency that we had and the pandemic and so forth. And, you know, we're missing the, the, these voices that we used to have that really went after the status quo or whatever the, the, the regime at hand. And that one of those voices was Hunter S. Thompson, you know, made a point of really pointing a shotgun right at Richard Nixon, for instance. Um, why don't we discuss, and whoever wants to jump in, or even I'll point it to you, Cliff, to start the ball rolling, you know, what do you think uh, Hunter S. Thompson would have been in during this last four or five years? How do you think he would have responded? Well, when he got, as, he, as evidenced in his writings, in like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, when he got up against the wall, timing-wise or commitment-wise, he came out with some of his most brilliant work. And I think he would have felt his back against the wall as he did with Richard Nixon, with Donald Trump also. And I think he would have, and he viscerally hated Richard Nixon. I mean, it was, it was amazing. If you've ever read uh, the obituary that uh, Thompson put together for Rolling Stone magazine when Nixon died, it's, it's classic, beautiful, beautiful piece of work. Uh, and I think he would have done the same thing with Trump. He would have just had used him for target practice regularly. And, uh, in his own special way, would have made his life miserable, uh, made Trump's life miserable uh, if he'd been given free reign. You know, Jan Weiner isn't exactly a courageous individual, and he uh, he, he tried to put uh, reins on Thompson, and it didn't work. It was classically funny when, he, in, in Thompson's recollection of his confrontations with Weiner, and uh, I think that anybody that had employed Hunter Thompson would have been having the same opportunity in spades when it comes to Donald Trump. Uh, but uh, he, he, his, his initial, his initial reaction to Nixon was almost at a personal level. He disliked him so much. As a matter of fact, they, they, they were, he was on the enemies list with the famous enemies list with, with Nixon. And they somehow Thompson ended up in a limousine with Nixon later on. And they actually had a, a running conversation about pro football uh, for some reason, and, and Thompson wrote a great little article on that also. But uh, I seem to remember I think, that. Yeah. Uh, what I find what I find interesting, if I may jump in, is like is that when you think about the articles and the and in in all the uh, political commentary that we've read from uh, Hunter S. Thompson in reference to Richard Nixon, what I feel is missing from commentary today is that his his um ability to use the English language the way he did phenomenal. Was, was phenomenal and one thing, but also to convey that he wasn't just afraid for himself. He was afraid for society as a whole. And you can, and you could feel that his motivation wasn't a selfish thing. It was like, if you're not paying attention, you're, this is going to snake bite you. What are you doing? And that, that was the, the resonating message that I felt was so important back then. And I don't know if that voice exists today, which is a bit unfortunate. You've got a few writers, this guy Taibbi, he took down McCain pretty tough when he was going up against Obama, probably ruined his chances at the presidency right before the election in 08. But I mean, other than that, I don't, you don't feel the visceral fear for 
the for his his own kind he, he is as solo as he was he had a community he he connected with people i do believe Maybe well I'm and wrong. i think no i don't think we have vehicles as as focused uh on cultural issues as rolling stone was at that time like him or, or hate him it was the lightning rod of uh the printed press in, in the late 60s, early 70s for the counterculture and the generational conflicts that were occurring. Um, and I, I don't know if there was any, there's any vehicle like that right now. And I certainly don't know anybody that is currently in journalism that is writing as courageously as Thompson did because Nixon was vindictive. He was going after people that opposed him and isolating them and had his boy, Jay Egger, you know, bird dogging them and trying to work files up on them and so forth. So, I mean, could you imagine what that does to someone's psyche? Even, I mean, no. even as tough as he was, he ended up alone up on that farm with his family and his guns. Uh, and it's no wonder. I mean, if he was, he, he was on a list, put yourself on a list by the, by the federal government that see what that does to you. It's incredible. Which is a, a complete, was part of the, the, the whole package of crimes that Nixon was involved in. That was a complete abuse of presidential power to, use the offices and, and agencies of the government to go after political rivals, which is what Nixon was doing. I think, Tom, I think Thompson would have had a field day. He would have felt backed into a corner and you would have seen some brilliant flashes of light coming out of his typewriter, I think. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite, uh, I mean, there's so many, it's trying to say your favorite Hunter line, you know, is it's, it's, it's near impossible, but uh, his, and this is probably one of the reasons where uh, maybe Nixon didn't uh, particularly care for Hunter was when Hunter described Richard Milhouse Nixon as a foul caricature of himself, a man yeah. with no soul, no inner convictions, with the integrity of a hyena and the style of a poison toad. And that you could always count on him to take the low moral road on any issue. I'll never forget that line. <laughs> you could that could be interchangeable interchangeable with donald trump as far as i'm concerned it could it could be they both have a paranoid view of the world and uh were both strike out at anybody that opposed them uh, charlatan-esque you know style and yeah the only differentiation between the two is i think richard nixon was a very bright man i'm not sure trump was anything but a, a bully in a neighborhood hack yeah in the political scene in new york yeah I think that's 100% true, but, if, yeah. and again, it's it's very difficult to give Donald Trump credit for anything, but the one thing that I've been saying for years, and I think it's something that Nixon couldn't quite manage, and, and I wrote a while back that when, when Nixon got caught, you know, you get, usually when you get caught with your pants around your ankles, you have no, no recourse but to turtle walk <laughs> off into the sunset, and if I give credit to Donald Trump for anything, it's the fact that he realized if you if there is a firestorm of your own making that can take you down, instead of trying to walk it back or apologize for it, what he has done is just create five to ten other firestorms and deflect and deflect, destroy and deflect. And maybe it's much more possible to do that in today's day and age, social media and everything being it is that it wasn't quite maybe maybe nixon didn't have the opportunity or the avenues to get his distorted message out to create those deflections well you know after after he had resigned david frost did an interview with nixon it was of somewhat 
celebratory nature. And uh, he, uh, Nixon actually said with a calm and, and no hesitation that Frost asked him why, why he did some of the things he did. And he said, because I'm the president, I could do anything I wanted. And I think he, he, uh, he, he fundamentally operated under that premise almost naively. Uh, it wasn't until he got confronted by the heads of Congress that they said, you can't go on. They're going to burn you down if you don't resign that he finally did. I don't think, and Thompson had a field day with that. So he limped away like some cur dog at that point. Uh, but I don't think Tom, you could have gotten Trump to resign at gunpoint. I don't think he would have gone down like that. hundred percent. No. Kevin Pete mentioned, uh, the journalist, Matt Taibbi. Uh, I just got done, uh, listening to the audio recording of his latest book. I don't know if uh, you follow him at all or Clifton, if you do, but I think there's some kind of interesting par parallels. I don't would never call him a writer of the magnitude of uh, Hunter S. Thompson, but it's kind of interesting in the fact that he's inherited the Rolling Stone um, political writer role. Uh, he did do some interesting work during the financial crisis. I think that he did a pretty uh, marvelous job of trying to help the layperson understand what was going on and all the toxic uh, products, mortgage-backed securities, et cetera, that kind of uh, wrecked the economy in 2007 and 2008. But um, yep. I don't know if you read his new book, but I, he kind of, he did some soul searching and, you know, I, I don't remember a journalist kind of, you know, laying himself out there and saying, Hey, I fucked up. I was part of, you know, some of the problems over the last like 15 or 20 years in terms of reporting. But uh, I guess, where do you guys see him uh, as, is he the standard bearer uh, of today's journalism or uh, is he doing justice to the Rolling Stone uh, seat well, that he filled? I, I, I'm not familiar with his work, but I could say in a comparison or analogy with Hunter Thompson, I would point to the fact that this was a guy that was willing to to stare down Sonny Barger and the Hell's Angels over a case of beer. <laughs> I don't think any, anybody around right now has got those kind of chutzpah. You know, and he approaches writing the same with the same fearlessness. He was fearless. Yeah. An outlaw makes no qualms or apologies about it and is willing to take on whoever he sees as the, the source of woe in his life and others around him. Well, by uh, all accounts, he's a, he's he's considered a gentleman, and he and he and he he held very important to his. his one of right. his codes was to be a gentleman, be nice to people, to help people that were hurting, and you know maybe that side's not talked about a lot with Hunter, but it's it bears mentioning that yeah he may have been an outlaw against people that were oppressors, but he was for people and he was for helping people and for lifting up people that were less that had less huge admirer of muhammad ali uh yeah. uh saw them as the two touchstones of fame that louisville kentucky deserved uh and um uh, he took on that whole social structure of old south mentality and his, uh, his essays on the kentucky derby which were brilliant oh yeah uh, um he he he, he, he was not afraid of social institutions uh, or, uh, you know, you're talking Richard Nixon. This is a guy that went after and destroyed people's political careers just on, on a personal dislike basis and had 
that little evil son of a bitch, uh, Jagger Hoover, uh, is his bulldog in the background. Mm-hmm. Kevin, did you have any thoughts on Taibi? Have you followed his career at all? Um, I, I have not followed him recently, so but I'm definitely interested to look out for this book that you're referencing. But there was a time several years ago where I was kind of following him, and I really did appreciate his work, his insight and candor. And do you, I mean, you know, like you said, it's tough to compare anybody to to the good doctor, but just to be even mentioned in the same breath and have yourself compared to him, I think is a uh, one hell of a compliment. Yeah. He started his writing career in the air force and uh, was basically given assignments of covering the general's garden parties and stuff. And obviously that didn't fit with his demeanor. So it, <laughs> that career didn't last long. <laughs> he was a handsome motherfucker too, wasn't he? I yeah, mean, he was long, photos, long and like, lean. Uh, yeah. He's just a fucking handsome dude. And the um, physique of a runner. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just want to add something about Hunter because we're talking about some things that people don't quite, I think, understand about the man. And kind of, I'm, I'm glad that Pete just referenced his his very, you know, people that are, were close to him, I think, especially because of his larger than life persona and, and what he was known for his extravagance and excess in terms of, you know, drugs and alcohol. And he brought that along on himself, obviously. He had no qualms about putting it out there. But people didn't realize what a Southern gentleman that he was, like Pete said. And a lot of people have commented on that. And I also believe that people don't realize a couple of things. One, just what a truly tremendous writer he is. They get caught up in the persona and everything else, but they don't quite grasp really what a goddamn virtuoso freaking magician wizard he was with the English language and then I would take it a step further and say people don't quite grasp I think because I think at his core he was a political writer most people think of Hunter S. Thompson they immediately go to Fur and Load in Las Vegas and I get it you know that was my introduction to Hunter when I read that in high school I think I was a sophomore junior in high school and I first read it and you know you get you get two paragraphs in and your head's taken off and you're and you're thinking especially at that age you can you can write about this like this is allowed this is acceptable and 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 being you know congratulated just does something to you but again what i'm trying to say is i think i would i would venture to say that he is the best political writer we've had and i don't see who i don't see who you could place above him in terms of a political writer and i don't think a lot of people realize that you know really at his core he was a political writer and just i would say number one on the list I will well, concur yeah, I with that thesis. Yeah. Mr. Kevin Colgan, the uh, author of the upcoming novel, as we're talking about, Hunter's, or Letters to Hunter, Fear and Loathing on Lockdown. Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself first and then how you came about the idea to start an imaginary conversation with Mr. Hunter S. Thompson? Who says it's imaginary, Roger? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, uh, again, I, I think I said earlier, I started, uh, I, I read Fear and Load in Las Vegas, like a lot of young, impressionable high school kids did. And, uh, you know, it, it left a mark and uh, opened your eyes, which is why when I started college, I did my undergraduate at Chico State, I actually had every intention of being a journalism major. And I would say Hunter was a driving force behind that, that desire. And then I took some journalism classes and felt 
completely smothered and restricted by the rules of journalism that of course they're trying to drum you in drum into your head at, at, at when you start your your young college career and frankly i don't know if hunter would have been able to do what was demanded of now like we said how he was writing in, in the air force and i kind of gave him an opportunity to get his writing career and journalistic career off the ground but i also would say if, if your dream is to be like hunter s thompson it's really hard to uh to adhere to the journalistic mores and rules which is why I went on to get my master's degree in poetry, because <laughs> that's that's where the big bucks are, and nobody's telling you what you can write. But the I mean, when you agree, then, though, I mean, journalism is a shabby, shabby it, representation of itself these days. You know, it's it's not quite up to snuff like it used to be. No, and, and I would. Well, say, and uh, just to, it, just to add on to that, I just, <laughs> what, did first of all, I don't know, but did Hunter S. Thompson get formal? college education in journalism or did he no. carve his own path out i don't believe he did i think he he started as we were just noting with the air force job he had which was sort of a pr job and i can't imagine anybody less structured for a pr position than hunter s thompson but th oh, that's what I, they had him doing i have along the way read his uh, dismissal letter it's it's actually it, hilarious yeah he had it he had, he had it printed out and Put on the wall. Yeah, <laughs> very proud of that letter. You you got you end up uh, studying poetry because I know that knowing you as well as I do, I do know that some of your your professors were major influences in your writing prior, and maybe even equally as Hunter. I would I would think just knowing you as long as I have. I mean, let's. I'd like to hear a little bit about your time in Kansas. Well, I would say that. The whole, I mean, again, I was born and raised in San Francisco and uh, did my undergraduate at Chico State. And I know it's a smaller school. A lot of people around the country only know of Chico State because of its party reputation back in the late 80s. Um, but I was, when I was attending school there, when a friend of mine, you know, in a poetry class, he handed me a book by Albert Goldbarth. And Goldbarth is, is literally one of the best living American poets that we have. And I was always drawn to the prose poem, to the long poem. And that is what Albert Goldbarth excels in. And, and, and what he also, I mean, he has a book called Adventures in Ancient Egypt. And he would call them, I mean, different names for them. He you know, calls them a novel poem. So like an 80 page poem. And a lot of people just don't realize that you can do that in poetry. I mean, again, a lot of people just don't realize what contemporary poetry is. And they think it's still this, a B A B old rhyme scheme rhyme scheme or the British poetry that was inflicted on them in high school or in some college courses. But what Goldbarth would do, and what I really enjoy about writing most, I would say, is showing a connection between things that you would never assume to have any kind of correlation or similarity. One of those 80-page poems in this book I'm talking about, he basically is talking about ancient Egypt flying saucers in space because he has a for some reason has a fascination with that and then his father dying of cancer in a hospital in chicago when he was a young man and obviously you're never going to be associating your father dying of cancer with the pyramids in egypt and outer space but that's what albert did and that's what i really drew me to him and and i would say i would hope to say that this book that i this project i'm putting together and trying to finish up it's uh there's a lot of poetry in it in a lot of ways, I would say. And 
Well, I know that because Hunter made fun of me in one of his letters back to me talking about my over <laughs> my overuse of alliteration. Poetry, you know, it, it may have a, a it may be misunderstood on a large scale by the general population, but you do say and you're correct in saying that there is it is it can be very long form. And I think that if you are familiar with Hunter S. Thompson's writing, you are familiar with the idea that he is connecting words that would not normally be connected and if that's not poetic i don't really know what is so you know he could he could be easily considered a poet in his own right absolutely so that you know that makes sense to me i'm drawing i'm drawing the connection because i know your your past and your in your degree in poetry which is you know you make fun of yourself and you laugh at that but it's it's interesting and i think it gives a lot of credit to this idea that you have which um you know I'm sorry to have cut you off, but um, how did this idea come to be? Kevin, before you, I just real quick, what, what drew you to go to university in Wichita, Kansas? Uh, no, like years? I said, it was all, it was all Albert Goldbarth. I, one of his books set he my was a professor there? in Chico. He was a professor there. I opened his book. I saw in his bio that, that he was a professor at Wichita state. So when I started applying to grad schools, believe it or not, Wichita state was my number one choice. And, and I think, when I got my acceptance letter from Wichita, I had applied to Michigan as well at that time, but I hadn't, I was going to apply to some other schools, but as soon as I got accepted into Wichita, I knew I was going there because I wanted to study under Albert Goldbarth. And, and then the first thing I did was I found, when, well, this is before the internet, we could go online. I somewhere I found a book somewhere and I realized, well, I checked to see what the population of Wichita, Kansas was, because I was a little uh, frightened about moving to Wichita, Kansas. And they said it was 300,000 people. I was like, oh, that seems like a, fair amount of people it can't be that bad and i'll tell you what wichita is a pretty awful uh, place but for what i wanted <laughs> in terms of my education and studying under albert and learning from him it was everything i could have asked for it was and, that, and now you're a shocker for life that's correct yeah. <laughs> uh, to answer your question though pete about the origins of this um it's like i said when we went on lockdown last year i, I knew that I wanted to try and document things. And at that time, we all knew that this pandemic was just hitting us and we weren't quite sure where it was going. And then we were in the in election year. And you knew with Trump running for re-election that it was going to get squirrely. And I felt like it would be a good, good time to try and start documenting. I wasn't quite sure how best to go about it. And I knew that doing it in a kind of a diary or blog form would have been kind of screaming into the vortex. And, you know, obviously, like we have kind of said, ever since Hunter had died, we all have missed him. But I think last year, more than any time since his passing, did you really feel his absence and really desire and, you know, <laughs> clamor for his voice and to weigh in and, 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 and give you some stability through his madness, which is what his genius was. So when I came up with the idea to basically start writing letters to Hunter, um, as soon as I had the idea, I knew that was the correct avenue to go because I missed him and to be able to talk to him. And frankly, when you write to Hunter S. Thompson, everything's on the table. There's nothing that there's nothing that you have to avoid or refrain yourself from saying or hold back. And uh, 
and let's be honest too, I have a natural affinity to, to adopt the man's style. So I felt like if I was writing letters to him, nobody could accuse me after the fact of ripping him off because obviously I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna be paying tribute to him. But let me let me let me actually let me actually put into some context what I think that really is, is that you know it's a daunting, it's a daunting endeavor. You are you, you I'm sure it is not lost on you that writing letters to Hunter S. Thompson in this incredible kind of high concept thing is comes with it a responsibility to really exercise your knowledge of the English language and challenge yourself to to weave together your thoughts and I think it's a really impressive way to a challenge yourself which I know you you know we all need to challenge ourselves as any artist I've ever met needs to kind of trick themselves into being their best version. And I see what I find, what I, what, the reason I see so much promise in this book and this, in this premise is that you've tricked yourself. You've, you've challenged yourself and you've set, you've, you've, you've set yourself on a mission that there actually isn't an option to fail. So you have to, because you have, you have a standard that you want to keep yourself to. So for that, I salute you as well. I mean, that's a pretty, uh, pretty impressive and daunting endeavor, but you know, the passages that you shared with me and, 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 and the fact that it's almost finished is, is really something else. We're all looking forward to it for sure. Here, here. That's absolutely true, Kevin. Thank, thank well, you, gentlemen. Well. Thank you. I mean, as, as you all can attest, if you're, uh, if you're going to pen a letter to Hunter, you, uh, there's a high bar. It's a high bar that you're yeah. probably not going to clear very consistently, but if you could clear it just once in a letter, you would uh, probably feel pretty good about yourself. Well, after listening to uh, several passages read to me last night by Mr. Kevin Colgan, I can attest to the strong writing skills uh, within those pages. There was some really good stuff there, no doubt. Well, it's funny because I feel like, you know, Hunter has straddled this line of pop culture, but subculture. And with that comes the... I, th- I think the down the down times in his career is when he was too cool for school or it was too cool or it was cliche to talk about Hunter S. Thompson, but his, you know, when he's, he's, he would have been probably what, almost 70 now. I yeah. Mean, easily. I, would, I would imagine he, he I, I know he, he died when he was 60. No, he was sixty. He was sixty-seven in two thousand. Oh, he was sixty-seven so, then. So, so he actually, he actually would be eighty. He'd be eighty-three wow. right now, which wow. is incredible to consider. And you know, you're talking like you know that's so that's now what? Uh, my, ten years later, I'm uh, my mouth. Sixteen, sixteen years. Sixteen years, years later. later. <laughs> and uh i'm I'm an athlete not a mathlete uh, no, i'm not even an athlete so i don't even know what that means but um you know he's endured and you know like twain as as cliff had mentioned earlier on twain-esque you know i think that hunter s thompson is going to be one of those names as time goes on after we're all long gone that will still endure i i, I do believe that even though his catalog isn't massive I think it's potent enough to endure. I mean, what would you say to that, Cliff? Oh, I absolutely agree. His use of uh, irony, of humor, of insightfulness, and willingness to, to say exactly what he thought 
mark him as one of those special people, one of those blinding comets that blew through the atmosphere in, in verbal communication. Uh, he, he, he was magnificent. Funny and enough. Twain, funny enough he was a vehicle for me to discover twain more than i had where you were saying he was he reminded you of twain i knew very little of twain until i until you pointed out to me how how the connection was and now i know more about twain than i ever did because and it's because of hunter s thompson which is weird i'm going the opposite direction i, I think they would have been great uh, Chums, if they had the opportunity to meet, he uh, Twain would have appreciated his use of the language, I think. Most definitely. And so, Kev, you're getting into the, you know, we're getting into the lockdown and you're getting this idea together. You know, the impetus was to, that you, you know, you didn't want to document it on social media or in the, in the lost vacuum of a blog or something like that. So you decided to write this novel. As the whole thing progressed it must have gotten i don't know was it easy with the material that you were given or did that make it harder do you think the, the way that the the year shook out and and again even when i go back and i'm reading through these letters there's and i'm and my hope is when people read through it sure it might trigger some bad memories but i think the overwhelming reaction is when you go through it is you're like oh my god i can't believe it. i can't believe i forgot that because it was so insane when it happened that in a normal year, it would have been the high water or low water mark of the year, and, and you, it would have been an inescapable memory. But because there was so much last year, you just forget about every piece of insanity. So it was it was positive. In the, there was no lack shortage of material, but it definitely was hard to keep up. And and you know there was a time there where I was watching daily every day because they thought it was a good idea to have press conferences every day until they realized what a bad idea was and then they scaled them back <laughs> which i'm sure donald didn't appreciate but every day for a stretch there i was watching both donald trump's press conference and then i was also watching kylie mckinney's daily press conference and doing that every day for a stretch will uh it'll do something to you and uh you can try and drink your way through it and i did for a while but you're gonna hit a wall i did hit a wall at one point last year oh, where i, I stepped away for a minute off. but yeah i think uh, everybody did man everybody. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah i i, I think it go ahead I, I was just gonna say i got to the point where i couldn't stand to turn a television on you know what kind of monstrous uh misdeeds was you know the toad involved with this time <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, Go ahead. Go ahead, please, Roger. No, you go. Well, no, I you can't finish your thought, and then <clears throat> I think it's a time to maybe get an example of uh, some of these letters. I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, I would have loved to turn the TV off, but I had to go the other direction because I just, you know, I wanted to know exactly, even though you can, in any, in any daily, in any day, you could always know what CNN was going to be saying, what MSNBC was going to be saying, what Fox News would be saying, but I still felt I had to expose myself to it so i was actually watching fox every day as well for at least pieces to uh to get both sides and uh i don't recommend it <laughs> so, i can't see I, I can't see you accusing tucker carlson of being a cultural warrior Kevin. <laughs> yeah you know the, you know it's tough to win a gang fight when you're wearing a bow tie <laughs> that's well put <laughs> 
All right, so Kevin, so, I go think ahead, it's Judge. A, oh, no, Pete. I was going to say one of you were uh, was has elected uh, to to read one of these passages. <clears throat> uh, you, you could throw a coin up in the air and pick which one. But let's I, uh, let's have I'd, some examples. I'd like to I'd like to read uh, these two examples that I was sent, and you know, Kevin shared uh, several others with me over the last few months. But before I do, I want to ask. Uh, Cliff, have you, are you, do you remember or are familiar with the term Kazart or Kazart? Kazart. Kevin asked me the same question. Yeah, I do remember it coming up in, in Thompson's writings. That, that was uh, his attempt to explain the, the, the mental sensation he was having about something. And he, yeah. So, you won't find it in a dictionary. <laughs> so Kevin was telling me this a couple of weeks ago and I had never heard it. I mean, I, you know, I, that's not surprising because I'm not the smartest man walking around, but oh. it's funny. Um, and so with that, I, you know, I have two passages here. And I'm going to put it to a vote. There's a really good one about Nixon, which is apropos to our conversation earlier, or we can talk about Kazart. What do you say, guys? And real quick, the Urban Dictionary says the Kazart's definition is it's the equivalent of Holy shit! I should have yeah, known. I think that's fair. <laughs> yeah, I think Hunter also. Hunter also would like you to, to basically say beware because he signed up a lot of his letters to Kazart. Kazart Hunter is how he would end a lot of his letters. <laughs> so let's go with Kazart, the creator of Kazart. You know how during the throes of a heavy-duty acid trip, when you savagely kicked a dragon by pouring an endless amount of alcohol down your Ma then decided to throw some other drugs on the LSD fire. Because what cause what's the worst that could happen? And it's weird, but it's fine. Weird, but it's okay. Weird, but I'm hanging in there because I know none of this is real except, wait, is all this actually fucking happening? No, it isn't. I know it isn't. Those bets aren't real. They can't be. Don't even entertain the thought. That's how they get you. Show no fear, but motherfuck, just give me a 30-second pause. 30 little seconds. Half a minute of normalcy. That's all I need. <laughs> then you can do your worst. Throw your entire arsenal at me. Bats. Hell. Massive embed pterodactyls dive bombing while belching glitter and humming Mr. Roboto for some mind-bending reason. And I'll embrace the entire fucking scene. Maybe even toss in a perfectly timed domo arigato for good measure to show I'm a sport. Everything's hunky-dory, and I'll even gobble more blotter to prove it. Yep, that's where I'm at. <laughs> I, I, I was halfway through that when I first read it through. I'm like, this is absolutely <laughs> excellent, man. I mean, what you're doing there, in my opinion, is you're throwing throws with them, but you're putting your own, you know, little twist on it, which I really, really appreciate. I think... I think the I think people that read this in the future are going to appreciate it as well. Yep, I agree with that. Yeah, man, I could actually when I hear that, I could just picture you saying some of this stuff. So yeah, I oh, hear uh, the Kevin Colgan uh, voice coming through. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know if the reader that doesn't know you personally gets it, but I do. And uh, you know, the only thing missing is uh, a swipe at Chad Pennington, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to tarnish this uh, conversation with talk of the Jets, George, but uh, nice try. <laughs> Let me apologize. But yeah, that was great, man. 
That's Absolutely, great. man. Um, Cliff, man, another thing, you know, not to segue away from that, because I do want to read another, this other passage to, about uh, Nixon, but, um, you know, I think it bears mentioning as well that for myself, I mean, I know Kevin had an interest in a, in a, he, he had a, a, an adept knowledge of Hunter S. Thompson prior to meeting you. I did not. You inspired me to, to go down that road. And I am actually forever, forever, forever grateful because not that it molded my personality in such a way, but it was at a, a point in my life and a time in my life where it was just the right dose of, of intellect that I needed to, to come back to the middle of maybe even being too arrogant or too, or too whatever. And it centered me at the right time, at the right way and sent me on a path of wanting to, to learn and explore and have a little respect for that counterculture that I so, so flagrantly claimed to be a part of, but, you know, didn't really, couldn't have really known had I not really read or, or gone into it. And, don't know that that would have happened had I not met you. So, oh, no, I am, my I pleasure. Am. You guys were great to be around. You were like sponges, and uh, it was easy to talk about. And I, I'm verbose, if nothing else. So it was a good combination. I, uh, I, you know, I want to slip in one word. One of Hunter Thompson's uh, literary heroes was Ambrose Bierce. I don't know mm-hmm. if you knew that or not. This is a, a truly a character to to hang your your hat on literary. He. Uh, ran off to Mexico in Pancho Villa's revolution and disappeared. They never saw him again, uh, which was a great, uh, still an open case. And his Devil's really? Dictionary is one of the funniest uh, funniest books you'll ever want to read. He, he gives uh, fictitious definitions for words and throws in some scalding political uh, observations in the process. Anyway, I've forgotten about Ambrose Pierce. Wanted to bring him back up. Certainly. Thanks for mentioning Very nice. That. Very nice. Yeah. He wrote the famous uh, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, right? Yeah. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Uh, yeah. Great film study, early film, black and white. Mm-hmm. I read that in grade school. I think I read that in, I want to say, like eighth grade. Yeah. He was he was a contemporary of Twain's and, and, and in some ways equally gifted as far as his use of the language was concerned. So. Is that and a course, standard to, for uh, kids to read in school? At least, was the, it? Or the, is incident, it the, the incident at the, the bridge is certainly a standard, and, and yeah. for film students, too. Yep. It's an early film work. Uh, and the Devil's Dictionary comes up in college courses. Uh, and, of course, he wrote other stuff, but it's interesting. Both of them were journalists in their background, uh, Thompson the, what, and Twain what, what, and uh, Beers. Was the incident at Owl Creek, was that – during like Puritan times, no uh, Civil War. Civil War. Civil okay. War. Yeah. yeah, it's been a long time since I read it, but I definitely, I definitely, absolutely remember reading that. Yeah. It's funny because the, the the Civil War uh, short story was made by the French as a short film in 1962. Oh, I did not know that. that that's interesting. Yeah. It is. They. Uh, <laughs> I know it scared kids to half to death, the, the whole premise of what was going on and the guy getting hung uh, in the storyline. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to, I wanted to interject beer. So I always thought that was an interesting choice of literary influences. But if you look at it again, just like Hemingway, uh, they're all journalists by background. Uh, Thompson, Twain, 
beers, uh, and that seems to have hammered through their their linguistic abilities. Well, I mean, it's also interesting that he chooses F. Scott Fitzgerald to copy in that manner to to get his chops down. And if you think about it, that's actually a really incredible way to train your brain, to train your body. I mean, we've all read The Great Gatsby. It really is wordy and and well put together. It's it's incredible. He's in that pantheon of 20s artists. Oh, yeah. Incredible. I mean... So lost generation group. Yeah. What you what yeah. say you, Kevin, what you got any observations on Fitzgerald or, uh, beers? No, I mean, again, you know, hunters, you know, emulating them and looking up to them. Um, and I think you said earlier, maybe when we were talking that, uh, if there is a, an after afterlife saloon, you know that Pearson, Fitzgerald, and Hunter, and and we said Hemingway that you know they're all they're all there belly up and uh, you know to be a fly on the wall would be uh, oh amazing amazing. Be amazing yeah yeah I would throw in uh, Henry Miller William S Burroughs and Kerouac all hanging out together too all sure make it, why not <laughs> we'll, we'll make it a magnificent seven Raj. <laughs> you guys might be a little disappointed in the format, but I think uh, just by, um, you know, life getting in the way, I haven't been able to read as many books, but I have been listening to a lot of audiobooks. I don't know where you guys stand on listening to uh, audiobooks, but the last two books that I actually listened to were the Matt Taibbi book, which is kind of tying into uh, Hunter S. Thompson and Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. So, and I, you know, when I was listening to Huckleberry Finn, I'm like, oh man, this would be a lot more intellectually challenging reading versus listening to it. But uh, it's just kind of ironic that uh, we're talking about all this stuff. And uh, those are the last two uh, audio books. That's fascinating, isn't it? It is. Maybe you're subconsciously in that mode of, 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 of tapping into that side of your brain you know, as we're having this conversation, I mean, those are two certainly apropos books to be taking in around well, these times, man. Yeah, Tom Sawyer was the first novel I ever read on my own. My uncle uh-huh. gave it to me when I was six. And that was the, the first full-length novel that I read, all, you know, with not being in school. And uh, I kept that with me my whole life. And, uh, this is one of those things. And, I, and the thing about, you said it was, would be intellectually difficult to read Twain, but I would say just the opposite. Twain, you know, he his genius was that he was able to reach just about any audience, right. even even with his sardonic wit. You know, he he's capable of understanding and putting it in terms that was poetic yet also easy easy to digest. Do you give yourself a, a favor favor and read his short stories because they're, oh, they're yeah. magnificent, absolutely magnificent. There's one called The Invalid Story about a box of cheese that he thought was his uncle's body. And it, it was in a heated box car. And as he got worse, the cheese started smelling. Of course, he thought it was his uncle smelling up the box car. But, <laughs> uh, and then he did want to call it Political Economy about a lightning rod salesman. It's, he's trying to write a thesis on political economy, and this guy keeps banging on his door trying to sell him lightning rods. So he passed <laughs> like 200 of them to just get rid of the guy. And he said every thunderstorm within 50 miles of there centered over his house at that point. <laughs> and, and he had to sell all of them to get, get, get the lightning and leave them alone. But 
just absolutely geni- genius types of work he did. Short Could stories. Could you imagine how ahead of his time he was writing that? Oh, man. I mean, the, come on. His contemporaries didn't know what to make of him. It's, even, um, the first short, even the first short that he became famous for, uh, the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County, is, you know, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful short. I remember reading that in school, too. Yeah, I'd it like is. to go back and read a lot of that stuff. But, you know, it was interesting that uh, Huckleberry Finn was a book that, uh, you know, was written in the 1800s is set in uh, antebellum times. But there's a couple of parts of, of the story that, you know, you go, you, you know, you challenge yourself and read all this. And, um, you know, there's a part in the story where one of the characters is, you know, the mob kind of comes to his house and they're all following. There's no original thought. And he kind of tells them off. He's like, you know what? you know, you guys are, you're not essentially saying you don't have the character that I have. You're just a bunch of fucking followers. And there was a, yeah. And there was a, there was a lot of, um, I thought parallels to like contemporary life where there's really, you know, not a lot of original thought and people are just following and not really doing the work and not doing any independent thinking. And they're just kind of following the mob and they're, they're comfortable around a group where they're, uh, they, they, they don't really have to uh, confront anything. And he kind of tells them off. And I saw that, you know, there was a lot of parallels. And then also, um, you know, talking about Tom Sawyer, how he kind of put his reputation on the line, you know, that uh, Huckleberry Finn said he came from a, a prestigious family or a good family and he had credibility and he put basically everything he had on the line to, you know, rescue a slave and huckleberry finn said you know he doesn't have to do this but he's gonna do it anyway so i thought that was kind of interesting and then lastly and i'll shut up is that uh you know what i like to do after i read a book or watch a movie is kind of just like search for like information afterwards and there was somebody wrote a um academic paper saying that they thought huckleberry finn was black and it made me just rethink the whole story a totally different way. I'm like, yeah, maybe he was. It's really interesting. And I never thought about that throughout the whole story, but it's possible. I don't know what you guys think about that. I'm trying to access this paper and I can't find it anywhere. It it was very controversial. The book was at the time it was published. It still is. They're they're trying to ban it periodically uh, because of racial stereotypes it projects. Mm-hmm. But he, it's a period piece. He's simply reflecting the usage of the language at the period. Of the period. Right, of Mark Twain was uh, uh, kind of revolutionary in the concept of this privileged white child embracing a runaway African-American and, and helping him escape, mm-hmm. you know, and, and with, with empathy uh, for the care. And it, that's what makes it a classic. His, his, his yeah. People weren't thinking in those terms in that period of time. Not many literate ones, anyway. That's, it's, I, I love that. Um, I think Pete. I think we got uh, time for one more of the uh, yeah. letters uh, to. I'm going to read, read this one excerpt, and then I and I would just like to share one anecdote to leave you all with. But this is another really special uh, excerpt from uh, Kevin's forthcoming book, "Letters to Hunter," and here it goes. I firmly believe if Trump had been in Nixon's shoes, he would have emerged untouched. As impossible as that sounds, Tricky Dick was a goddamn novice when it came to shedding tactics. 
Watergate would have brought Donald, Watergate never would have brought Donald down. He just would have ordered some of his minions to break into 10 other hotels while the first was still being investigated. Systematically, systematically delegitimized the Washington Post, sent Woodard, Woodward and Bernstein to a slow boat to Forlorn Island, then finger-banged a few of the pool reporters before setting fire to the Oval Office and fielding questions in the Rose Garden. <laughs> All in an afternoon. Then, no matter what was asked, he'd, he'd just give a lengthy, rambling, swerving over four lanes answer that was completely off-topic, making everyone toss their notepads and tape recorders into the air and head straight to the bar to numb their brains with libations. I mean, I want more of that. I, yeah. I, didn't, I, I stumbled over it, but I want more of that. Fantastic stuff, Kevin. Bravo. And I, know, I know we're all really looking forward to, uh, to this. And Thank you, sir. And, Thank and, you. and uh, as a group, I mean, you know, we're all family here, but we'll be promoting the share of that book. Uh, when yeah, absolutely. Out. And if I may, um, as we wrap up, I just want to share a story with uh, more with uh, Roger and George, because Kevin was there. But one of my fondest memories, um, you know, when I think of you, Cliff, is a Thanksgiving, um, you know, I don't know the year, I want to say circa 06 or something. I, I'm not really sure, but you were living in Leesburg, Virginia. And and uh, this particular Thanksgiving, I was down there with Kevin and you were going to fry a turkey, which I had never had fried turkey before, you know, in my life. And you set up the, uh, the fryer outside in the back deck and uh, you brought Kevin and I a bottle of wild turkey and we started drinking wild turkey and we're having some, you stocked the fridge full of beers for us here in Nevada, which is the only beer we were drinking. Cigars, <laughs> nice, you, nice you cigars. Know, Cause you're, cause, yeah. It's always cigars. here in Nevada, man. Well, I mean, I'll tell you what, like this, look at those two they're drinking right now. I mean, you know, Cliff just got a whiff of the idea that that's the beer we liked. And he had, he had his whole basement fridge full of it for us. You know, that's the kind of guy he is. And, and we sat out there and we had a fire going and it started snowing in Leesburg, Virginia, which if you haven't, if you've never been to that area of the country, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's absolutely amazing. You beautiful know, it's, horse country. it's beautiful horse country and there's, it's steeped in history, steeped in, in American history, civil war history and everything else. And we're sitting in this idyllic, just light snow falling and sitting out there with you, Cliff and uh, Kevin, and, you know, sipping on some wild Turkey and, and connecting and in and, and the beginnings of our friendship is something I'll carry with me forever. And, you know, you, you, you've given me the motivation to continue to, to learn, oh, to man. continue to find, because you, you know, you know, you're, you've all, you're always learning. You're always pushing. You're always, you're, you're constantly reading. You're constantly feeding yourself with information and, you, and, and, you know, I look up to you in a really great way. You're, you're, you're someone I really, really ad admire. And I couldn't, I couldn't end this without, without telling you as much. And well, thank you, great, Pete. It means, it means, it, came on here, man. it means the world to me. I appreciate you both. Uh, we almost burned the garage down. He forgot to tell you that <laughs> the, uh, we, uh, all the stories about setting your house on fire, frying turkeys are absolutely correct. Cause we came <laughs> inches away from doing the same thing the uh little gauge that registers the heat was jammed unbeknownst to me and, oh my god kept turning right. the heat up this, this boiling cauldron of hot vegetable oil pete said man it's sure taking a long time to get hot <laughs> there was smoke coming off of it 
So I thumped the little metal gauge and it sprang way over to the red zone. I said, holy shit, we're going to set a fire house on fire in here. And so we turned it down. But that was a process of malfunctioning equipment and, and us drinking way too much bourbon and beer at the simultaneous. <laughs> This if is, I could just uh, if I could just piggyback on, on on what Pete said because I actually shared this with Roger earlier today and I'd love to share it here again that you know at that time when we were down for, for Thanksgiving I had met Cliff but my first meeting of Cliff this was when I was moving from Maui back to New York City and Pete was in New York City and at that time we were trying to get off the ground a Matthew Brady who was a Civil War era photographer we're trying to get this Matthew Brady script off the ground and. Pete and Cliff had been in contact and discussing this and decide that, you know, we're going to basically try and put this script together. So we formulated this plan that I was going to go home to San Francisco from Maui. And then I had a body one way ticket from San Francisco to Washington, DC, where Cliff and Martha, his lovely wife, Martha Lee, were going to, I, I've never met them before. And I really, my really long hair at the time, they were going to pick me up at the DC airport and take me down to the house in Leesburg, Virginia, which is exactly what happened and it's also the first time i saw mentioned the legendary aforementioned hunter s thompson office that cliff had <laughs> constructed there and every night we were drinking and they also had heard at that time that i like steering about it i've never met these people before and they opened their house to me and stocked their fridge and steering about it and ice cream because that's those are the two staples that you need and then cliff and i would get up early in the morning well cliff would make me get up early in the morning to get in his bft just the big fucking truck and he basically, for two weeks, took me on a Civil War crash course. I had never seen that part of the country before. And it was, it was so incredibly special. Gettysburg, Antietam, Bull Run. I mean, we, every day, we, Cliff basically took me around and showed me the Civil War battle sites. And I said it to Roger earlier. I said it when I left Leesburg, Virginia, to Cliff and Martha that will always be two of my favorite weeks that I've ever lived in my life. It was just really, really amazing. And again, so Cliff, I had to share that with you because well, you, made, you, made, you made it happen. You guys made it easy because you were always open books. You didn't turn down the opportunities that were there. And you put, you put up with me doubling endlessly about historical minutia. And I, I was appreciative of that. I, I got my master's in 19th century American history. So it, it's kind of a, an area of focus for me. But these guys put up with it. They should have been awarded for their patience and, and willingness to, to listen to me drone on about issues that are a very limited interest to most uh, most people anyway. But Man, you know what else you did on those trips? You turned me on to Stevie's Underground Garage to, that I listen to to this <laughs> just, day. Just I, about I to mean, say that. I was just about day. to say that. That is the best goddamn channel on radio, man. It is. It is oh, absolutely great. I love it, too absolutely so just before we wrap up is there any last thoughts any goodbyes and thank yous roger uh, just from a film perspective um hunter s thompson's uh you know some of his works were covered in film uh one that always stuck out to me obviously was the um fear and loathing in las vegas you know, uh, from your point of view, uh, being uh, the gentleman in the film industry of the group, uh, uh, would you say would you say that's Johnny Depp's peak performance? I, I know his kind of career went went in a different direction, but he was kind of taking on some challenging roles. And I think also uh, Benicio del Toro. You know, he made a physical transformation 
and almost to the point where you don't even recognize that it's him uh, playing uh, Hunter S. Thompson's lawyer. Uh, where does that, you know, can you speak? Laszlo. Yeah. What, what right. do you think of that film? Well, I, 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 I like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It was going to be originally directed by Alex Cox, the guy who directed Repo Man and Sid and Nancy. And he, he's still credited as being one of the writers of the screenplay, <clears throat> his original co-writer. And Universal took him off after, you know, it, just to say differences of opinion. And Terry Gilliam took it over. I, I mean, I think, you know, to, to literalize Hunter S. Thompson's writing, and particularly that novel, I think they did a very admirable job. And right. I think Johnny Depp crawls into the character. <clears throat> it's not my personal favorite Johnny Depp performance. I've always been partial to Ed Wood yeah. for, for me personally, but I think that uh, I think it, I think it's one of his best. And the film has, you know, rightfully so, gone on to become a a cult film. You know, uh, it's very it wasn't overly critically acclaimed at the time, but it certainly has a lot of people who who love that film and you know the uh, the other person who crawled into character playing hunter s thompson of course was bill murray and where the buffalo roam not a good movie a poor choice in the the laszlo character and peter boyle playing that part and directed by a guy who was really a producer never directed before art linson but you know given that the film is a kind of a mess you can never forgive bill murray's performance either and he got so into the character that when he went back to Sunday Night Live, he kept being Hunter S. Thompson, much to the chagrin and dismay of all of his cohorts on the show, because he kept, you know, he became so he became a pain in the ass about it. And uh, the Rum Diary is not a particularly good film. It was Bruce Robinson, who the great film director who did um, oh the one with um, the guys uh, with Noel and I, which is a which is a wonderful film. Lovely I film. Yeah. I, I don't think he quite lives up to it uh, to either Thompson or Johnny Depp. And I think the movie's kind of a mess. And, you know, there are countless documentaries, countless documentaries made about Hunter S. Thompson that, uh, you know, anybody can easily find out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, Fear and Loathing, uh, I mean, I love it. It's not my favorite movie, but I dig it. Absolutely. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say, Pete, is that um, when you and I took a trip across the country, uh, starting in uh, Long Island, New York, and, you know, making it all the way out west, uh, we met up with our good friend Todd Vizagati, who uh, will be on the show at some point. But uh, we got to sit at the bar at the Circus Circus. That was my only mission was like, when I get to <laughs> Vegas, I'm going to that bar. That We did. It, it was it was. George, I have to jump in because yeah. not only did we have, was he fixated yes. that we had to sit at the Circus Circus Bar, which was still open. We stayed at the yeah. Stardust for like 29 bucks. Three of us crammed into a room in that night. But going back to actually the film, mm -hmm. we George and I were in school and George like, we got to go see uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And we, the only movie theater that had it was this town called Messina, which was like Gosh, 35 minutes away. Right. He stole our buddy's car, Joey Chapman. He grabbed his keys, took them, and we went driving out there. There was about seven people in the theater. Oh, my God. Everybody besides that. us left the theater. We sat there and enjoyed the whole film to ourselves. Do you remember that? I, now I do. Roger, was that film, was that 1998? 90? It must have been, 99 yeah. or 98, yeah. yeah. I was living in Chicago 
So that's that right just came that. back to me, George. That's crazy. Oh, dude, I don't. I, I do remember that now. It's funny what the human, the mysteries of the human mind, man. Like, but I, I'm glad. I'm glad you brought up. You know, the yeah. film is a major part of this whole story, and, and you yeah. know, you guys have been so interesting. We never, we never even touched on it, but Benicio del Toro, I would say, really uh, nailed that whole experience as uh, as um. Well, the lawyer. What's what do they call him? Affectionately, Laszlo, Ross, Raul, Raul, Raul Duke. Was it? Raul. Uh, that's right. Uh, Oscar, that's right. Oscar Acosta. He, the Acosta. man has many names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. man has many names. And Who dude, disappeared this... into Mexico, like uh, Bears did, and was never. They don't know. He's uh, still an open mystery. They don't know what happened to him. Just that's so great. many, so many great like lines in that book. Like Kevin, you were saying, like the intro paragraph. He's like. Anytime I can say I got a salt shaker full of cocaine, I try and say that. And anytime that I can say I'm sitting by the pool sipping Singapore slings, I try and do that too. Yeah, man. I mean, he's walking into Vegas and he's got his and they and they do the thing where they show his uh, his briefcase and it's just all the drugs. And he's going into a cop convention. I mean, Incredible. you don't you can't narcotics cops, narcotics <laughs> detectives. Exactly. And and it also it also uh, we I would like to mention at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. Now I don't know if it's still there, but the one of the very first things you see is the first written handwritten pages of Fear and Loathing by Hunter S. Thompson framed. You know, oh, we, shit. we were somewhere near Barstow in his hand. Uh, you remember that, right, George? Yeah, I do. Was so, yeah. I was just in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh maybe six months ago. I don't remember seeing that. I, I, I was kind of rushing. They might have changed right. it up. We, we went there yeah. right after it opened in 99, but. Yeah, that was great. That was, that was one of the first stops of the said road trip. You know, we left New York. We visited your sister in Pittsburgh. And I think the second yeah. stop on the trip was, uh, no, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and then Cleveland. Yeah. And it just opened your right. And that's when uh, the Cleveland Browns, I think, reopened their stadium yeah. uh, as well. Cliff, man, um, you know, we're wrapping it up here, I promise you. I know it's getting late there, but uh, is there right, any, is, uh, you know, I asked Roger this the other night when we were doing uh, an interview with him, and the answer was really great. So I, I'd like to ask you, man, is there anything that, you know, you could you could leave us with in the way of a philosophy that or, or an ethos that you live by or a, or a code or just a little nugget, man, because, you know, we, you know, your generation gets a bad rap and I think rightfully so the baby boomers are a bunch of fuckers, but you, <laughs> you've broken that mold and you're not that you, you're, you're managed to keep an open mind. You managed to, uh, to keep expanding your brain and, and befriend, you know, misfits like ourselves. And, and I look up to you for that. So if there's something you could leave us with, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd be eternally grateful. Well, we touched base on it with Hunter Thompson. I think no matter how bad it gets, if you get backed in a corner, the only thing you can do is come out fighting like some kind of mad dog and, and set, set the whole set of circumstances back on their heels so that you can uh, make it something that you can manage to for. And that, that. It's, it's hard to keep that in mind sometimes when you're in a dark place and backed in a corner, but that's the only way to get out of it is mad dog approach to it. That would be what I'd get. I love that. <laughs> that is, I absolutely love it. Break the stick. I yeah, love it. That's right. That's, that's right. Well, that's excellent, gentlemen. I want to thank each and every one of you. Uh, of course, my cohorts, George and Pete. But I especially want to thank uh, Cliff and Kevin for being here tonight. It was a wonderful, fascinating conversation I think we had. 
uh, again, we can't uh, say enough. And now I know a lot more about Cliff, and I hope so do our listeners. And please be on the lookout, folks, for um, Letters to Hunter, Fear and Loathing on Lockdown, coming soon from Kevin M. Colgan. Hopefully they'll be out sometime within the uh, within the year. Would be would be nice, wouldn't it, Kevin? I think in the next few months we can uh, I can uh, we can get this out. So look forward. Going to push. Going to push. Well, I want to thank all of you for putting up with me, traveling. You know, dabbling on uh, some of my favorite people in the world on this screen. So uh, this has been a real pleasure, and I'm, I'm impressed at the professionalism you guys have projected in, in the process. So thank you very much. Thank you. Cliff, and, my honor, my honor to uh, join to to join the show with with you. So thank you, gentlemen, for making this happen. I really appreciate it. So I'm going to sign off now. So that's a wrap tonight for our latest edition. And remember, when the going gets weird, the weird listen to five dollar buzz. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but it never got weird enough for me. Good night, buzzards. <laughs> Good night.